You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be today as we kick off our uh, new series for this incredibly fascinating and relevant book uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. And the idea behind this series is um, we have experienced a tectonic shift in America. I'm not sure if you've realized this or not, but the ground beneath our feet has moved, and we are now living in what sociologists refer to as a post-Christian nation, or what the Bible refers to as a Babylonian culture, a culture that runs hostile to the way of Jesus. And in this Babylonian kind of post-Christian society that we are living in, now we have as Christians experienced three major moves, or three major shifts. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. I'll put it on the screen for you. But the first major shift that we've experienced is the shift as Christians from the majority to the minority. And here's what I mean by that. Um, though Christianity is exploding all over the world, it's actually in decline in America. Barner Research, in their most extensive survey ever done on spirituality, uh, found that in the year 2000, 45% of Americans qualified as practicing Christians. 45%. And by the way, by practicing Christians, that doesn't mean they were like, Mother Teresa's of the world. Like, this is just people that were reading their Bible and showing up every Sunday. Um, but as you can see on the screen, I think, or we can put it back on the screen. We'll leave that up for a little bit. As you can see on the screen, uh, the number that is kind of identified there in that red line, what it shows us is that Christianity or practicing Christians have been on decline ever since 2000 to where now just one in four Americans would identify as a practicing Christian. And so think about that for a second. The number of practicing Christians in America has dropped by 45% to 25% in just a little over 20 years. And so practicing Christians literally have been cut in half since 2000. Uh, Needless to say, as followers of Jesus, we have become an endangered species in America. Uh, We have, in a shocking turn of events, become the James Deans. Or, or like the Mandalorians of our day, kind of these rebels living on the fringe of society. And that's the first major shift we've seen over the last, uh, especially 10 to 20 years. Here's a second shift. We have gone from a place of honor as Christians to a place of shame. There was a time, believe it or not, where Christians were well-respected. Um, but even as late as the 90s, right, though we have gone from kind of having these positive kind of connotations when people think about us, um, we have now moved into this place where an increasing number of people see us not only as weird, but as dangerous. Uh, because of events like we just witnessed in Washington, D.C., where you have people who storm the Capitol in the name of Donald Trump and Jesus Christ, we are now seen as kind of these crazy, uneducated, fear-mongering, kind of gun-carrying rednecks. And so uh, we're no longer in our society seen as a solution. We're seen as the problem. Um, we're seen as backward-thinking, angry, oppressive, judgmental, harmful people. And that leads to, I would say, a third shift that we are living in. It is a shift from widespread tolerance to rising hostility. 
Um, though we are nowhere close to experiencing what many Christians have experienced throughout the world um, in physical persecution, we are seeing, by and large, a greater increase as Christians in emotional and relational persecution. I think of Amy Barrett, who was recently confirmed to the Supreme Court. And if you kept up with her story, you know that whenever um, um, you know she began to go through her confirmation, there were people from the left who just began to freak out. And the reason they were so upset is because Amy Barrett is a part of a group called the People of Praise. And you may not know a lot about them, but basically the People of Praise are just these kind of charismatic Catholics who are trying the best they can to follow Jesus. Uh, they are trying to you know, live lives full of the Holy Spirit. They're incredibly caring, incredibly loving. They live in deep community with one another. So in many ways, they are phenomenal people. And yet because Amy Barrett was simply a part of this group, people from the left were freaking out and talking about her as if she is a threat to our country. And I share all that just to say this, guys. Whether you realize it or not, that is now the culture that we are swimming in. And we need to be aware of that. Um, This is what life is like in Babylon, a post-Christian society that is constantly trying to pull us away from Jesus. And if it's helpful, think about it like this. How many of you have ever been canoeing on Spring River? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, a lot of you. Uh, I remember the first trip I ever went on to Spring River. I'd never been canoeing, and so I thought it'd be a good idea to lead a bunch of college students on a canoe trip. And um, so there might have been some of you that were in here for that. I remember, okay, yeah, Heather and Matt, y'all were here for that. So um, so we go on this canoe trip, and, and if you guys remember, we go to pay for our canoes. The lady who was taking our money was like, hey, the river's up. There's a tree that fell down. And so, like, you really need to be careful when you come to this one part of the river because a guy died here last year. And so she was giving us, like, all of these, like, instructions on how not to die. And if this surprises you at all, I wasn't listening. I was like, how hard can this be? You know, like you're floating down a river. And, um, but eventually, like, we come to this fork in the river, and on the right side of the river, I'm looking, and there's all these people in their canoes, just kind of like carrying their canoes through the water. But we're on the left side, and before I can even realize it, it's me, my wife, it was my girlfriend at the time, like strapped in the middle, and then another guy in front of us um, that could not swim and had also never been canoeing. So three people in a canoe. And all of a sudden, I look up, and, and we are heading towards this massive oak tree like the Titanic towards an iceberg. I mean, it's inevitable. We are going to crash. And so I remember my wife was in the middle, and I did what any manly man does. I'm just like, Megan, do something. And so, like, she throws up her hand to try to, like, grab this log, like, you know, the trunk of a tree. And when she does, it throws her back, flips our canoe. We all go underwater. I'm, like, hitting branches. I come out. I look, my wife's like hanging on to this like branch for dear life like this. Like, you know, uh, I look and Jeff, the guy who was in front of us who couldn't swim, fortunately he had a life jacket on, but he's just going down the river like this. Like just completely taken hostage by the current. And, and, and our canoe's going this way. He's going that way. I lost my prescription glasses, which I had to drive our bus back with college students with no glasses. Um, and I lost all this other stuff that apparently you're not even supposed to take on a canoe trip, which I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me that? But anyways, I look at this moment of chaos and I'm like, Man, that's a picture of what it's like to try to follow Jesus in a Babylonian culture. In this secular current that is constantly pushing and trying to pull us downstream and away from God. And the temptation in this kind of culture is to do one of two things. It's either to try to like pull out of the culture altogether and say, you know what? I'm just not going to get in the river. 
I'm just never going to get in, in that mess. And so the temptation is to say, I'm just going to put my kids in Christian school. I'm just going to go to the Christian muffler shop. I'm going to work out at the Christian gym. I'm going to get my hair cut by a Christian barber. Like I'm going to just like hang out in a tree by myself with a bunch of other Christians and just like make my own jam and my own clothes and wait for Jesus to return. Like that's one temptation. Just pull away from culture altogether. But then there's another temptation, and I think this one is far more of a temptation for us, is to say, you know what? If you can't beat them, just join them. And so we just jump right in and we say, wherever the river wants to take me, that's where I am going to go. And because these are two big temptations that we face, God gives us the book of Daniel. It's a book that is here to show us not simply how to survive, but thrive in Babylon. It's here, guys, to show us how to remain faithful and filled with hope in a post-Christian culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the way of Jesus. And as we dive into this book, we're going to see that Daniel is a lot like Rocky Balboa. Are there any Rocky Balboa fans in here? Anybody? Um, four of us. I feel super lonely. Thank you, Brooke. Um, and so Rocky, if you've ever watched any of the Rocky movies, like that guy gets the crap beat out of him all fight long. And yet the more he gets punched, it's like the stronger he gets. And eventually he wins. Like he reigns victoriously every single match. And that's a lot like what Daniel is like in this book. He continues to get hit over and over and over, but he thrives in the midst of that. And if we're going to do likewise, if we're going to be able to withstand just the, the hit after hit after hit in a secular society, just like Daniel, we need to understand what God has to say to us through this book. And so with that, look with me now at Daniel chapter 1. We're ready to jump in, starting in verse 1. And as always, I'm reading from the NIV translation and the notes for today's message is on the YouVersion Bible app if that's of any interest to you whatsoever. Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Let me just stop right here and say uh, this. Um, what's happening here is after hundreds of years of God warning Israel that if they do not repent, they will be judged. After hundreds of, uh, of warning, after warning, after warning, and prophet after prophet after prophet, because Israel refuses to repent of their sins, get this guys, because they refuse to listen to God, God raises up King Nebuchadnezzar and the wicked Babylonian empire to come and conquer their land. And if you're like, man, I don't like a God that would do something like that. Why would God ever allow something like this to happen? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, God is a good father who always disciplines those he loves. This should be a warning, guys, please hear me, that if you are living in sin right now and life is going good for you, that's a bad thing. If you are continuing to follow a way that is opposite to the way of Jesus, and that's just like life's going well for you, that's a bad sign. That should scare you. According to Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God does not come in the form, typically, of some army that invades your land, nor does it come through some sort of disease like COVID-19 or hellfire and brimstone. But typically, in the Bible, when we think of the wrath of God, what we see in places like Romans chapter 1 is God does absolutely nothing. He says, you know what? I've tried to get you to stop going down this path. You refuse to listen, so I'm going to let you have it your way. I'm going to let you chase after this sin, and eventually it destroys you. That's not what's happening in Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, because God loves Israel, 
because he is a good father. He disciplines them whenever they sin, whenever they live in a way that's contrary to the way he created them to live. And how does God discipline them? Well, he does it by raising up this foreign enemy empire that literally invades their land and takes their people captive. Just think about what this would have been like for a moment. Don't rush past this. Imagine you're just, you're here in Paragold, things are going well, and then what seems like from out of nowhere, this empire, this wicked empire invades our city, destroys it, and then not only that, but they begin to put you in shackles and chains, they put you on a cart, and then wheel you off on a two-month journey as a prisoner through the desert, where eventually you're relocated into a refugee camp, where life is now completely different. Like, that's what just happened in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. So this is a packed verse. And though there were thousands of Israelites that were carried off into captivity, the story um, is just going to focus on four men, really. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or you probably know them as their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as we look in verse 2, look back in verse 2, and I want you to notice with me how these four men get to Babylon. Notice how they, along with these other Israelites, are delivered into the hand of this wicked king. Verse 2, the Lord delivered them. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of this wicked Babylonian king along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. One of the major themes in the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, what we are talking about is God's power. We're talking about his ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. We're talking about the reality that there is nothing in this life that ever happens outside of God's control. And this is what we see right here in verse 2. When the worst thing imaginable happens, and it appears surely that God has lost control of my life, what we discover is actually the reason Israel is defeated by the Babylonians. The reason they are carried into exile is because God wanted them to be there. God delivered, it says, Israel and their king to the Babylonians. And just so you know, this is not just the only place where we see this. In Jeremiah 29.4, God is talking to the people in Israel who are in captivity, and he's talking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says that, Jeremiah 29.4, I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's like, I don't want you to be confused by this. The reason you are where you are is because I put you there. And so, guys, this may mess with you a little bit, but how did Daniel and his friends get to Babylon? How did they end up in this wicked place that ran hostile to the ways of God? God placed them there. And he placed them there, as we're going to see in this book, listen, to be his witnesses, to be a light in a dark, dark place. And this is one of the things I love about the book of Daniel, by the way, is Daniel and his friends were not pastors, they weren't like, they didn't go to seminary. They weren't on staff at some church. They're not even adults, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but every scholar agrees that Daniel and his friends, when they went into captivity, were 11 years old to 16 at the oldest. At the oldest. And so these are young teenage boys, highly impressionable boys, 
hormones raging, all that stuff, boys. And God places him in this wicked, wicked place called Babylon to live as his missionaries. And so I just want to say this is a side note, because I know we do have some teenagers here in the room today. If you have the Spirit of God, you're not the church for the future. Like, you're the church today. Like, believe that. Like, raise the bar on what you think God can do in you and through you right here and right now. These are young teenage boys, and despite the fact they have no formal training, God sends them into Babylon for the purpose of transforming the world around them. And we need to get that, guys, listen, because tomorrow you're going to go to school, and you're going to go to school in Babylon. You're going to go to work tomorrow morning, and listen, you're going to go to work in Babylon, in a post Christian society. And what you need to know is you are where you are because God has called you there. God has called you to that desk. God has called you to that room. He has called you to that business. He has called you to that vocation. You may not want to be there. You may not like it, but you need to develop a rock solid conviction that you are there because God wants you to be there. And he wants you to be there, not to be of the world, but in the words of Jesus, to be in the world so that people who are far from God can be brought near to him. This is what we're going to see all through the book of Daniel, by the way. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so I'll, I'll hush for now. Um, but this is a major theme in the book of Daniel. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Verse 3. The king then ordered Athanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. And here's the kind of people that the king wanted brought to him, okay? Young men without any physical defect. If you're a single lady, by the way, in here, this is probably the kind of man you're wanting to hunt down. Um, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These are the kind of people the king wanted. He said, bring all these kind of men to me. Why? Look what he says next he's going to do. He's going to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king would also assign to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. So what is happening here? Well, in short, the king is taking the best of the best, and he's enrolling them into the University of Babylon. He's taking the cream of the crop, the movers and shakers, those who he thinks these people could influence all of these other people out there. And he says, I want to immerse them in Babylonian culture so that the Babylonian way of living will get on them and in them and through them. And therefore, all the rest of the Israelites will become like us. And look who he invites to be a part of this elite immersion experience. Verse 6. Among just this kind of like stud group of dudes who he chose from Judah was Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So now we're introduced to these four main characters, these young, highly impressionable teens, young teenagers, and what does the king want them around for? He wants to brainwash them. He wants to conform them, not into God's image, but into his own image. And for the record, guys, listen, this is the same thing that is happening in our world today. I read a book with our staff last year called Faith for Exiles. If you're a parent, I highly recommend you read it, Faith for Exiles. I think it's by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. And what they basically say in their book is that we are living in a digital Babylon. And the whole point of the book is that our screens now do a way better job of discipling our young people than our churches and our parents do. 
And there's a stat they share. I think we can put it on the screen for you. Look at this. The average 15 to 23-year-old spends 2,767 hours on a screen every year. The same average 15 to 23-year-old who claims to be a follower of Jesus spends 291 hours a year taking in spiritual content. You don't think that's going to have a disproportionate effect on the discipleship of our 15 to 23-year-olds? Then you're deceived. Because that is a massive difference. That is a 2,476-hour difference. And so whether you realize it or not, our young people, and us included as adults, we're probably really no different than that, we have all been enrolled in the University of a Digital Babylon. We all kind of have right now our own little immersion program uh, where the power and pull of a screen and whatever's on it, just like King Nebuchadnezzar and his school, it's shaping our hearts and our minds, and it's making us more like the world than it is like Jesus. This is what happens in our country, and it's what happens right here in Daniel chapter 1. So they enter into this immersion program, and then not only that, but look what the king does next. Verse 7. It says that he has a chief official to give them new names. So he says, I'm going to give you a whole new identity. And check this out. Look at the names that are given to them. Daniel's Jewish name means Jehovah is my judge. And Jehovah means the one true God. His name is changed to Belshazzar, which means lady protect the king. How degrading is that? By the way, he's talking about himself as the king. King Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah's Jewish name is changed from Jehovah has been gracious to Shadrach, which means I'm fearful of a god. Talking about one of the gods of Babylon. I worship a god of Babylon. Michelle's name, whose name means who is what Jehovah is, it's changed to Meshach, which means I'm despised before my god. And Azariah's Jewish name, which means Jehovah has been my helper, is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, or servant of the god of vegetation. And so do you see what the, what the king is? This is brilliant on the king's part. What he's doing is this, guys. Please hear me. This is so important. The king understands that what we do flows out of who we think we are. And so he changes or tries to change who these guys think they are. He gives them this new identity that he hopes will set the trajectory for the rest of their life. And again, this is an area where we might think, well, our culture is different than this, right? Wrong. This is the same thing our culture is doing every minute of every day. Our culture is constantly trying to give us, this is who you are. This is your name. This is your identity. And it tries to root our identity in something or someone other than God. For some of you in here today, what this means for you is that your sense of self is tied to your performance. And if that's you, you've believed the lie, I am what I do. Others in here, maybe your identity is tied to your possessions. I am what I have. For others, culture has convinced you that your identity is tied to your pleasure. I am what I feel. Guys, by the way, this is why there is such a massive shift around the sexuality and the gender arguments right now. It's like, I feel this towards this person and therefore I am gay or I am straight. Like, I am what I feel. It's an identity statement. Popularity. We find our identity in this. I am what others say about me. Guys, like, this is life in Babylon. This is what a post-Christian society is trying to root your identity in. It is in someone or something other than Jesus. 
This is what is happening right here in Daniel 1. And if you read this story, I mean, just think about this, guys. Think about the process these young teenage boys are going through. Isolation, immersion, identification, right? They are pulled from their faith community. They are being sold on an alternative story. Like, hey, I know that back in in, in Jerusalem, everybody told you that this is the way God wanted you to live. That's a bad way to live. Live the way we do as Babylonians. This is a much better, you'll be much happier if you'll do this. Identification, right? They're given a whole new identity. And if you were just to read this story honestly, you'd be like, these guys don't stand a chance. There's no way they're going to be able to remain faithful to God in the midst of all of this. But then we come to verse 8. And this is the last verse I want us to read today. And this is where we will settle in before we go home. In the midst of the isolation, in the midst of the immersion, in the midst of the identification, in the midst of this wicked culture, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. I would underline that if you write in your Bible. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now listen to me very carefully. This is a verse that we would probably skip over in our Bible reading plan. We wouldn't think much of it, but I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Daniel because here's what's happening. Think about this. Daniel was now in Babylon, and he is being told, here is any food you want, food and drink. It's the best of the best, and we want you to have it. And the foods that Daniel was being offered are actually foods that had been forbidden by God in the Jewish Old Testament law, which Daniel is under. But now Daniel's being told, bro, you ain't Jerusalem anymore. You don't have to live that way anymore, man. This is the way we do it in Babylon, and look how good we are. We just conquered you and your God. So live like us. Look how good we're doing. Where's your God been now? Eat the food, man. It's just food. It's just meat. It's just a little wine. Take it. We're all doing it. And yet, Daniel, good. I mean, I can't imagine the pressure. Despite the fact he's hungry, despite the fact he's lonely, despite the fact that he knows that if he'll just do what the king says, life will go better for him because rather than being a little peasant who stepped on, he'll be like in the king's palace. Despite the fact that everybody else around him is probably doing it and eating these things and just doing as the Babylonians do, despite the fact he could probably even justify in his mind that it's okay for him to eat this while he's in exile, he says, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm not going to sin against my God. Daniel draws a line in the sand and he says, you can rename me, you can immerse me, you can isolate me, you can entice me, do whatever you want, but I refuse to do what I know God has commanded me not to do. Guys, this is a life, listen to me, of no compromise. And it is the secret to not just surviving, but thriving when you find yourself in Babylon. It is so important that we get this today because please look right at me. I really want you to hear this. I'm even taking a drink of water before I say it. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Nobody just wakes up one day and decides they don't want to follow Jesus anymore. You know how that happens? One compromise at a time. I'm telling you, 
I've only been in ministry for 16 years, but I've seen it happen over and over and over. These small, seemingly insignificant, kind of incremental decisions that end up having a massive long-term effect on your life and your family. I see it all the time. We see it especially in kids who grow up in church and they're taught the way of Jesus and then they go off to college. I mean, the stats tell us right now that 85% end up dropping out of church. And, and I'll tell you, like, here's the way it happens. You graduate from high school, you get out of home, you get finally some freedom so you don't have someone's thumb on you, right, all the time. And you realize, hey, being a Christian really isn't all that cool in the eyes of the world. And by the way, it really isn't cool, just for the record. We need to stop trying to be cool Christians because it can't happen, okay? Like, we just need to be okay with like being like, we're not going to sit at the cool kids' table, Paul said, if I desire the approval of man, I would not be a servant of Jesus. And so you go off to college and you're like, man, it's not really cool to be a Christian. So you know what? I'm just going to drink a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm going to start cussing a little bit here and there. Because that's kind of cool. I'm going to let my theology slide. Start relaxing on my sexuality. Sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Probably won't have sex all the way yet. Just a little fooling around. Maybe look at some porn. Yeah, I mean, I was going every single Sunday and I was showing up every Wednesday night to this thing or whatever else, but uh, that's uh, maybe every other week. I've got a lot going on. And then every third week, and then once a month, and then eventually you fall away altogether. That's life in Babylon. And it's lethal because it's so dang unassuming. It's like this weird, it's like this weird anesthetic to your soul. To where you just continue to take these small steps of disobedience that eventually lead you down a path to destruction. And so I just want to pause right here. And I just want to ask you, is there something right now for you that pops in your heart that you know is an area of compromise? For you, is there anything right now through the teaching of this word the Spirit is highlighting and saying, you know that's wrong? Maybe it's around your sexuality. Maybe it's around a neglect of your family duties. Maybe it's around the abuse of alcohol or prescription medication or lying or gossiping or holding a grudge. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's vanity. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's coarse humor. You joke about stuff that you would never joke about in the presence of God if you knew he was right there with you. Maybe for some of you are robbing God and tithes, and I don't know what it may be, but is there any area in your life where you know what the New Testament teaches, but because of the pressures of Babylon, you're compromising? I've told you guys before, before I ever preach a message to y'all, I have to preach it to myself. And so I've been thinking about Daniel for about three or four weeks now, just getting ready for the series, and I was reading through Daniel 1 and thinking about verse 8, about living a life of no compromise. And I guess it was, what, two weeks ago, Adam and I got a call to go pray for a woman who is homebound. She's in our church. We can't get out of the house and want us to lay hands and pray for healing. And so we went over there, and before we prayed, I just said, hey, and I've done this before, but it's like, hey, let's just see, is there any sin in our own hearts that would keep that would hinder our prayers right now? And I've said that before. Like, let's just take a moment, 30 seconds, just listen to God. And I've never had one of these kind of moments. So maybe it's just because I was thinking about the book of Daniel. I'm sitting there, and we're about to pray, and immediately the Spirit said, 
You were harsh to your wife last night. And you need to repent of that. And you need to, you need to ask for your wife's forgiveness. And you're talking about awkward. I'm like, Adam was there. I'm like, hey, I need to go outside for a second, make a phone call to my wife and ask for her forgiveness before we do this. And I called my wife, and she just began to cry. and just said, thank you so much for, for calling and telling me that. And listen, I didn't hit her the night before. I didn't cuss her. I didn't yell at her. She just had something on her heart that was heavy and was a burden to her. And I thought it was kind of silly. You ever had one of those moments like, eh, okay, but whatever. Just kind of like shrugged it off. And man, it hurt her. And I knew it did even that night. And I was like, I'm tired. I'm I'm going to bed. And the Spirit of God said, that's an area of compromise for you, man. You've not been real gentle and tender in your care for your own bride. And some of you, maybe you hear that and you're like, bro... Dude, you're being a little hard on yourself. Just a little hard on yourself, dude. Like, chill out. And that's the words of a Babylonian. It's the small sins that are the most dangerous. Because it's these small, seemingly insignificant sins that, if left unchecked, grow and get bigger. And then they begin to wreak havoc on your life. And so again, I just want to ask you before we end the day, where in your life are you compromising? Are there any sins, little sins, that you have begun to tolerate? The Spirit has said you've got to turn away from that. For Daniel, it was the king's meat and the king's wine. My guess, that's not your temptation this morning. But it's something. And whatever it is, my encouragement to you while we are now in Babylon is to pursue holiness with more intentionality than you've ever pursued in your entire life. This is how Daniel thrived in Babylon. It was by going above and beyond in his pursuit of holiness. And you can call Daniel whatever you want, legalistic, fundamentalist, without the fun. But here's the thing, this dude made it in Babylon. And he didn't just survive, he thrived. He said no to the little sins, and as a result, he changed the world. So is there an in-between area in your life? That's the question this morning I'll leave you with. Is there a gray area where you're maybe even wondering right now, like, uh, is that a conviction of the Holy Spirit, or is that just my legalistic parents talking and church? Back? Instead of doing all those mental gymnastics, just ask yourself this question. Jesus, if you were me, would you do this? Jesus, if you were me, would you handle my money like this? Jesus, if you were me, would you treat my spouse like this? Jesus, if you were me, would you parent and shepherd my kids like this? Jesus, if you were me, would you watch this? Jesus, if you were me, would you drink this? Would you eat this? Would you, would you touch this? Jesus, if you were me, would you spend your free time like this? And if the answer to the question is no, then stop doing it. And if the answer to that question is, I don't really know, man. Jesus didn't have Netflix. I don't know if he'd do it or not. I don't know, man. He didn't have a girlfriend. Like, I don't exactly know. Then always err on the side of holiness. Guys, this is how you're going to experience more of God's empowering presence. God says, you must be holy for I am holy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed, listen to this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.
Do you want to see God? That's a serious question. Like it's not like for you personally, do you want to see God? I'm not asking like, do you want to see someone preach about God? Do you want to see the band lead worship about God? I'm not asking, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Do you want to see God? If you want to see God go from being this abstract idea, if you want to go from having this secondhand knowledge of Him, some of you, it's like the only experience you have of God is somebody else's experience of God. You know what I mean by that? It's always their story about God. You're like, man, that'd be nice to have one of those kind of stories myself. And if you're getting tired of that and you're like, man, I want to go from having a secondhand experience of, of God to having a firsthand, personal, intimate relationship with Him, you have to have a heart that is in pursuit of purity. You have to. You have to have a heart that is quick to repent. I told some of you guys uh, last year, I read a biography about Keith Green. And if you don't know who Keith Green is, um, he was basically this kind of like hippie prophet, singer, songwriter who loved Jesus. And he died tragically in a plane crash at the height of his career. And um, he has had a massive, this man has had a massive impact not just on the music industry, but churches all across the world and Christians all across the world. And I was reading his book, which was written by his wife, Melody Green. And you know what she titled his book? Think about this. The woman, if anybody knows you, it's your spouse, right? <laughs> Typically. Like they, 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 yeah, they see it all. Good, the bad, and the ugly. They know who you are when you're not performing. And you know what his wife, when she wrote a book, a biography about her husband, you know what she said? This is the title that sums up my husband's life. You know what it was? The title of the book is No Compromise. That sums up a life of Keith Green. This was a man who drew a line in the sand and said, even if people aren't watching, even if nobody else is doing it, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus, to walk the narrow path, to make no compromises so that I can experience more of him so that I can see him move in me and through me in incredible ways. And as I thought about that this past week, I thought, you know, the reality is, guys, my guess is none of you in here want to live mediocre lives. That's my guess. I doubt there's anybody in this room that's like, you know what, I just, actually just want to be like normal. I don't, I want to be like, I don't want to do great things with the, by the time I have. I just want to survive. And what I thought about is the people who actually end up living lives that are worth remembering, the people who have the biggest impact are people who refuse to go with the flow. They are people who just stand out. They just look different than everyone else. They're people of no compromise. And so today, as we end, if the Spirit has highlighted an area of compromise in your life, here's my goal this morning, guys. I know these messages aren't necessarily fun to listen to, but they are meant to be life-giving. My goal this morning is not to shame you. My goal is not to make you just feel a bunch of guilt. My goal is not to like drag you through the mud. My goal is to bring you to a place where you actually want to repent. And I know that word repent is such a dirty word in our culture, but it's a beautiful word in the scriptures because to repent means to turn from the sin which can kill you and to turn to Jesus Christ who himself is the abundant life that we are longing for. And I want you to know today that if you will choose to do that, no matter what you have done or have not done, you can experience in Christ the forgiveness and the fulfillment and the freedom that you're longing for. The truth is, guys, our sin has grave consequences. 
it leads to so much death and wreckage in our lives and the lives of our families. It is true that our sin has grave consequences, but it's also true, listen, that God is gracious and he's compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And so today, no matter who you are or what you've done, even if you find yourself standing in the wreckage of what sin has brought about, know that you also, because of who God is, find yourself standing on the promises that we read in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our own sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we need to be reminded of every single week in communion. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. I need to be reminded of that. Anybody else need to be reminded of that? That man, like, no matter what sins I have, I'll take them to God, I'm forgiven. I had a woman come up to me after the first service, just in tears, and she said, are you sure God can forgive me of what I've done in my past? Because you have no idea what I've done in my past. And I know that God knows. Are you sure he can forgive me of that? It's so hard to believe that, isn't it? Like we've all committed sins that I know, man, I know for me personally, I would never want you to see on a screen all the stuff that I've done. You'd never come back. And it's so tempting to believe the same about God, that if he just saw all the stuff that I have done, he would never want to come back. He would never want to be in a relationship with me. And guys, nothing could be further from the truth. This woman that came up to me, she has a special needs son, a very imperfect son. I told her after the service, I said, that's been God's gift to you. Because the way you have loved your imperfect son, despite all of his mess, is just a glimpse of the love that God has for his imperfect children and the messes that we have created. And communion is a reminder of that reality. And so here's what I want you to do. Before you start getting into communion, I told this to the first group, and I just really feel this. I know that the way these cups are made and the little styrofoam piece of bread, this doesn't feel significant, but it's incredibly important that we take this as a church. It's been commanded to us by Jesus to take this. And actually, the Bible says that whenever you take this in an irreverent manner, it's worse than if you didn't take it at all. How do you take communion with an irreverent manner? You just flippantly peel it back, toss it down, and stand up and start singing without even thinking about what you just did. So avoid that. What I want you to do today is I want you to be reminded of this reality that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect sinless life that you could never live and that I could never live and that he went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. And what the Bible says is that whenever we trust in Jesus with our lives, we are covered in his blood. And not just we covered in his blood for the forgiveness of his sins, but we are also clothed in his righteousness. We receive his perfect record. And according to the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 14, you know what that means? That means that right now where you sit, if you are in Jesus Christ, you look perfect in the eyes of God. I don't care what you did last night. You still, if you're in Christ, look perfect in the eyes of God. And he's crazy about you. And he's going to treat you for all eternity the way only Jesus Christ deserves to be treated. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. We take that piece of bread and we be reminded of the perfect life of Christ. I don't have to be perfect because Christ was perfect. And then we drink the juice and we be reminded that, yes, I have sinned badly, but I've been forgiven. God's grace is sufficient. And by the way, just so you know, that's not a ticket to go sin more. Paul 
talked about this to the Romans. The Romans were like, wait a minute, if the gospel's true, can I just like go commit a bunch of big sins and I'm always going to be forgiven? And what does Paul say? Heck no, that's not what it means, by no means. In fact, he goes on and says, if that's what you think grace is, then you've never really received grace. Because you know, man, when you've received grace, when you've received the love of God, when you've been, you know this with your own parents or your own spouse, when someone loves you like crazy, you're like, man, why would I ever want to do anything to harm this person? And that's the way it is with sin. When you truly receive the grace of God, the fact that you have been forgiven of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, it's not a ticket to go sin more. It's saying, man, God, you are so good, and I just want to be wherever you are. Communion is a reminder of all that. And so if you're a Christian today, we invite you to partake of communion. If you're not a Christian, rather than receiving this, receive Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. By taking communion, God's not going to forgive you of your sin. He's not going to answer some unanswered prayer. Uh, there's nothing special in these elements themselves, but they're a picture of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we take it. It's a way to embody the truth of the gospel. And so if you're not a Christian today and you want more information about that, uh, you can talk with me. I'll be right up here. I see Luke back there. Adam's here, our pastors. Come talk, talk to anybody. We'd love to connect with you about next steps. And even if you just want prayer, if it's like the woman in the first service, it's just like, God, are you sure God's forgiven me? Just let us come speak the gospel into your heart and pray that over you. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I'm going to pray over us. And don't stand yet. Just take a moment and let's just reflect on the words that we just heard, the teaching of God's word. And then after I pray for us, when you're ready to take communion, you can take it and then stand and we'll sing one one more song together, which is a reminder of our commitment to Jesus and his commitment to us. Father, I do thank you so much for everyone who is here right now. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words and make them alive in our hearts. I cannot imagine in a room this size that there are not some people here right now who just heard the gospel and their hearts weren't pricked at all. God, we've all been there. We can hear the gospel. We can think about your love and not be moved by it. And that's because of the hardness of our own hearts. And so I just pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would soften us today. Bring down the walls that have been built. Speak over us our true identity as your beloved sons, as your beloved daughters, as your chosen people, as a royal priesthood. Help us to become a people, God, who take holiness seriously, that we want to see, we want to experience more of you. And we want to make you known to the world around us. God, I pray that this church would be a place that because we are pursuing holiness, because we are pursuing purity, that that we are being just filled with your Holy Spirit. As a result, when people come around us, they say, man, God is there among those people. That they experience you in a real and powerful way. If there's anybody here right now who does not have a relationship with you, Jesus, I pray they would not walk out of this room the way they walked into it. Help them to trust that in you is the forgiveness and the fulfillment and the freedom that they have been longing for. Meet us all where we are. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.